welcome to episode 10 of the Filmium Entries podcast. This is Jamie Benning, speaking to you from South East London at my home here. Um, for this episode, which I'm amazed I've reached, the 10th, uh, I spoke to a really interesting, intelligent, generous, warm guy called Sylvain Desprit. He was a illustrator, is an illustrator, and worked with Ridley Scott, Stanley Kubrick, David Fincher, Tim Burton... In a way, he's kind of unfiltered. He says what he thinks, and what he thinks is pretty much spot on, as far as I can tell. I've, I came out of this conversation feeling pretty educated, actually, in a positive way. And uh, I really hope that I can talk to him again in the future about some more of the specifics of his time with those directors that I mentioned. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the chat as much as I did, and I'll be back for a bit more jabbering at the end. So how did you first get involved uh, in the artistic world? Was it something that you were destined to do? When did you realise you were on this path to become a clearly a very multi-talented artist? I don't know that it was a conscious thing. I think I was given permission to do it, so I did it. I think when I was a kid, uh, I was lucky enough to grow up in an environment where this sort of thing was encouraged. Nobody said, don't do this, you know. And um, I, I remember my mother showing me some sketches she'd done um, a beautiful kind of a tiger that was drawn in a style that was very much like sacred art like Indian or something it was in profile and it was it was very symbolic but very beautiful and and I was very excited by that and I thought well maybe I can do something like this and nobody ever said don't do this or this will be catastrophic or you'll have a terrible life or anything like that um, but I don't think I ever decided anything. I just did it. And then it's kind of like being a trained monkey. You know, you do something well once and you get a reward. You know, people applaud or they go, oh, look, he can do that. And so you do it again. And um, here we are. <laughs> Year, years later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, mentors are very important to us in whatever we end up doing in our lives. And did you have mentors from, from a young age or whether it's whether you know I've seen mentors as people that we either have a you know private relationship with we know personally or they could be people that we look up to that we never get to meet are there any special mentors for you uh, the the mentor question is uh is a very big one we, we can mm. talk about this for an hour um the thing is uh, what I've learned about mentors and people who to whom you suggest that mentoring could be useful, um, need to approach this relationship almost like a substitute for something they may have been missing in their lives. In other words, I've never seen a person who had a, a solid, sound upbringing do well with mentoring. I think it's mm. only people with absent fathers or absent mothers who um, gravitate toward some kind of compensation and become attracted to the idea of accepting a mentor in their lives. Mm. I, I've brought people to meet some of the artists I've known, like Jodorowsky or, or Mobius or people like that. Um, and I could tell that there was only so far they were willing to go, largely because they were well-balanced human beings and, and proximity after a while just kind of creates a problem for them, which it didn't for me because I'm completely imbalanced and I didn't have a father growing up. So mentors have been around me my whole life. That's all I have done. That's all I've had. 
And it started very early on when I was a kid. Somebody suggested um, I be taken to the planetarium because there was um, a wonderful guy who was working with lasers. We're talking in the early 1970s. You know, lasers were mm. pretty amazing. And, and so I got to spend an afternoon in this lab with a, a guy showing me all kinds of experiments that he was conducting with lasers. And I was stunned. And that was my first kind of experience hanging out with a professional. And it was far from the last because um, in, in growing up, I ended up um, working. One of my first jobs in New York City was uh, working for Neil Adams, who's uh, quite a famous comic book artist. He's very famous in the 70s. And, and uh, by the time I met him, he was running a sort of sweatshop in Manhattan, um, catering to advertising agencies and doing storyboards for advertising agencies. So that's kind of where I learned the craft of working for in the ad business, which is very different from working in film, but has some f fundamental principles which you can rely on. And I learned a lot from Neil. Um, and so in a way, he was a mentor. He was my boss, but he was also a, a high authority in the illustration business. And um, the, the, the advice he gave me on a couple of occasions, uh, I ended up using pretty much for most of my career, including working for people like Ridley Scott and people like that. One of the things I learned from Neil Adams, which was extraordinary, we used to get these horrible little sketches from art directors in ad agencies who dictated the sort of storyboard frames they wanted, but they couldn't draw, none of them. I mean, it's a prerequisite. If you were an art director in New York in a big ad agency, you couldn't possibly draw. <laughs> so we'd get these sketches and we'd laugh, you know, and say, oh, look at this head, big like a pumpkin, you know, how can we frame around this? And Neil was all saying, don't laugh. He said, this is your client and he means to say something with this. So mm. take the sketch and try to extract as much of the meaning that he's trying to pack into it so you can give him back what he's expecting to see. So we say, well, how can we do this? Look at the size of his head. He said, well, assume that what he means is that this is the proximity to the head. Assume that you can trace over his eyes and build a sketch out of this. Mm. And you'll see that by doing that, you won't have to redo every frame. It seems like nothing. You know, mm. except years later, uh, when I was working for Ridley, who's an amazing illustrator to begin with, yeah. if he did a sketch, I always had this thing in my mind thinking, assume that every aspect of the composition is something that is absolutely meaningful and, and give it back to him. So I'd mm. look for right angles and shapes inside the frame and corners and edges and, and blocks um, you know, maybe a third off of the side, off to the side of the frame or something like that. I'd make sure that whatever tiny little line was in there meant something. It's useful. Yeah. You know, and it helped me. It helped me actually secure a position with Ridley where he felt very comfortable with whatever I gave him because he's a master of composition. And even a tiny little sketch for him contains a lot of data. And I think he was disappointed in his life working with storyboard artists who just didn't get that, that, what he did was essential, was critical, and had to be preserved. It's like transporting a cargo. So directors don't always do sketches for you, but there's always an indication of what they're after if you're if you're cautious, if you listen carefully. And and I think part of what I learned with people like Neil Adams was not to dismiss something, but actually focus on what it is that the the, the person wants. So 
my next mentor after that was probably the most important one I had in illustration was Mobius. Yeah. Jean Giraud, who's a French, French artist, Mobius. Yeah. Passed away about 10 years ago, eight, 10 years ago. Mm. Um, and I had a, a friendship slash education with this guy that lasted over, you know, nearly 15 years. We, we were close. I knew him well. We spent a lot of time and I worked with him. And, and um, I learned a lot, you know. Mm. So that was that was uh, mentoring. But I, I even made mentors out of anybody I met. I mean, people like Ridley, over the decade I worked for him, probably was also somebody I looked up to as a mentor. I, I don't think he was mentoring me, but I think I, I certainly treated it like that. I took as much from him as I could. Yeah, because working for somebody like Ridley, I would feel very intimidated, even if I was as gifted as I wish I could be as, as an artist, because as you say, he's an incredibly gifted artist himself. So how did you approach being able to translate what he wanted uh, from his sketches into something that was maybe fresh to him? Because he wants to, he obviously has an intention, his sketch might give you an intention of what he, he's looking for, but then he's also looking to you surely for something, to find something new in there also. It was touch and go, I think, um... I mean, from the moment that I'd been hired on a job with him, I figured, well, he's hard enough to approach that if I have a gig, he must have seen something he likes. <laughs> and fortunately for me, by that time, I had al already worked quite a bit in New York in advertising agencies, you know, where you basically work around the clock. You work until four in the morning in Manhattan and you do this day in and day out. And, and I'd met people like David Fincher and I'd done jobs for him, et cetera, et cetera. I'd met Tim Burton. Mm -hmm. um, I think by the time I met Ridley, I guess I'd gained enough confidence, if that makes any sense, that mm. I'd, I didn't freeze up. Um, I'd met celebrities. I'd met a yeah. lot of celebrities. For some reason, I, I've met some of the most famous people in the world. Don't ask me why. <laughs> I, I'm, I worked, um, it's a bit embarrassing now, but I worked with Michael Jackson huh. in, in his home. You know, hmm. We did storyboards in the middle of the night. Um, uh -huh. So once you've done that, in a way, the, the sort of part of your brain that has to kick in and set aside the admiration or intimidation you may be feeling, that part of your brain takes over because mm. you've, you've built enough professionalism. I'm glad I didn't have to, to work with Ridley on day one coming out of school or whatever. Yeah. Uh, what was intimidating was just figuring out how his personality functioned just because he's not much of a talker. Mm. And you could mistake him for somebody who's not paying attention or something, which uh, mm. would probably be costly. He's he's extremely aware, but doesn't talk much. He's not a, he doesn't speak the way intellectuals, you know, kind of layer words, but he's very bright. So I just remember my first day at work with him where I came in and I was ready to sit down and, and bullshit, you know, and he was like, all right. Page three, and boom, started working immediately. Huh. And there was no, no chit-chat, no foreplay. And in a way, that was the easiest thing about it, is that yeah. within seconds, we were talking about um, perspective and volume and shadows, and I was comfortable with that language. Mm. As opposed to trying to find my bearings on a, on a personal level, which I could never have done. I, I would have been terrified. Yeah. But talking about drawing, I wasn't because suddenly I was in a universe where I actually controlled a lot of things. Mm. 
So I think that's how I approached it. I thought, all right, well, I guess we're running, you know. And what film was that? Um, before I worked on a film, I worked on commercials with him. But okay. the, the first film we were involved in was I Am Legend, which uh, never got yeah. made. Mm. Um, before that, I, I got hired under fairly unusual um, circumstances because um, I lived in New York the very first time I met him. And I, uh, I snuck into a party where I knew he was going to be and met him. <laughs> and um, I had a polite chat with him that went rather well, considering I knew nobody and I just went in and kind of introduced myself. And then his producer, a wonderful woman by the name of Cindy Akins, tapped me on the shoulder when I left a few minutes later. And she said, I'm his producer. Do you happen to um, ever be in Los Angeles? And I said, oh, sure, I'll be there next week. <laughs> and uh, and she said, oh, good, well, give us a call. And I went, okay, I went home and I booked a flight immediately. Of course, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so next week I called and I said, I'm here. And she said, oh, cool. So um, I don't get it. Do you live here or in L.A.? And I said, oh, I live here. <laughs> so I started working for his company almost wow. immediately. And then huh. I had to figure out, like, how to get a place, how to go back to New York and move my stuff and all that. But so that's how I started. Um, wow. And, and I, um, on I Am Legend, it was really the first time that I was one-on-one -on -one with him in an environment where it, it looked like I was going to be there for months. Uh, there wasn't going to be anywhere, anybody else. I think we were three people working on the film. There was myself, there was uh, uh, an artist named Tani Kunitaki, who was one of the main illustrators on Matrix. Wonderful guy. And uh, he's doing a lot of the, the background, you know, designs of buildings and uh -huh. disheveled buildings and stuff. Wonderful. And there was Arthur Max, production designer. And we worked like that in an office for six months or something. Hmm. Um, so that, that's kind of like, um, it's a fascinating experience because very quickly you get to know these guys because you eat with them every day. Yeah. Talk to them all day. Um, they're all you see and after a while you're no longer dealing with the celebrity but you're dealing more with the job at hand and then you can actually appreciate what they do you know I think Ridley is very intimidating in the sense that he's a keen artist very very sharp artist with mm. an incredible sense of composition which you can see in his films you know it doesn't matter who the DP is it doesn't matter who the production designer is you look at a Ridley frame and you go, oh, here he is. I know this. I'm familiar with this. And mm -hmm. I just watched um, Raised by Wolves. And you know, so, so, many, so many of the compositions in the first two episodes, to me anyway, I, I read them like Ridley, Ridley compositions. I recognize yeah. all the horizontals and all the layers. He works in a lot of triptychs, a lot of thirds, mm -hmm. and, and skews compositions slightly. Never, never has like a straight down mm -hmm. the middle vanishing point the way Kubrick would have done it you know? yeah yeah very different but I, I've become so accustomed to identifying his his sort of the, the palette of composition that he uses that I spotted immediately and there's there's no two people like him you know mm. yeah you're right about him being in, intimidating I've spoken to two people that work with him um, and both of them said the same phrase when I first met him we seemed to hit it off and they kind of shrug. They, they, they weren't getting the feedback that they might get from your average person, but they no. seemed to hit it off. And that was enough for Ridley to kind of engage them. I never them. do. I, I, I never, I mean, I think I've, I've known Ridley since 
the 90s i forget when mm. you know mm. early early 90s or something and i've never i've never felt that you know um his finger wasn't on the eject button at some point that you could just go <laughs> you know shoot up keeps in you on sky. your toes though yeah you are on your toes and and i think part of it is his personality i, I think unlike his brother uh, Tony, who was very gregarious and mm. always laughing, always joking. Um, I think Ridley is is super focused. His his assistant, whom I knew well, Anne Lai, said once, Ridley has no friends. She said, if you see a, a person coming up to you saying, I'm friends with Ridley, he's lying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard similar things from, from other people. Um, so working on a storyboard then... Um, you know, I, I've made some behind the scenes stuff myself and I've, I've always been fascinated. You know, the arrival of DVD was when a lot of people first kind of saw storyboards compared to the final product. And I always think that's a fascinating idea that you've got that first initial visual draft, if you like, in, in the storyboard. And then you've got the final film to kind of compare and see what has happened somewhere in between. What, what is your responsibility then as a, as a storyboard artist or what was it? OK, the um, one of the things I didn't do um in, in this big book that I'm putting out is I mm. didn't do this. I didn't do the, the frame by frame comparison because mm. I hate it. I mm. hate that. Um, I hate it because I think in my view of what storyboarding is, and you know, at this point, when I started in the business, I would never have said anything like that because I was supposed to just be learning and discovering a process. I've been doing it for three decades so I can start saying, okay, I think I know why I, I hold the opinions I do. And mm. I think this kind of business of comparing storyboards and, and finished frames sends absolutely the wrong signal. It suggests mm. that the storyboards are some kind of a, a limitation or, or a trap, some kind of a template that the director somehow must have followed. And mm. it's almost as if you go, well, look, looks the same that's good doesn't look mm. the same no good mm. and I, there's a danger of oversimplifying the 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 nature of these things i've heard directors i love say terrible things about storyboarding because they don't understand how that works probably because they've never met a storyboard artist who's actually sufficiently keen on filmmaking in, or, in order to be able to hit it off for them it's as simple as that mm. Mm. Um, a lot of artists, I hate to say this, but a lot of artists are almost autistic. They're mm. people who have very poor communication skills, very limited interests. You know, they might yeah. play one musical instrument. They might be obsessed with collecting stamps on the side or something. But they're, mm. they're not terribly fun people to talk to. They're not, they're not <laughs> gregarious. They're not open. They don't read a lot or many don't. And... and this is why they're attracted to illustration because it cuts them off from all kinds of contact with outside life. Mm. That's about as opposite to a director's personality as you can get. Mm. And I think a lot of people forge their opinion of storyboards based on the people they meet. Now, it's kind of like judging a band by its fans or something. You know, it's, it's yeah, kind right. of pro problematic sometimes. And I think that uh, this director I'd heard said something to the effect that, well, I'm not going to get trapped by little pieces of paper. <laughs> this is a really good director. And I'm thinking, well, that's not what we do. Mm. We don't do that. Nobody gets trapped. But I know what he's talking about. He's talking about being a visually 
awkward person maybe who doesn't feel comfortable showing your producer these things and then having the producer say, well, this is great. That's what we're doing, mm. which is not the point. The point is to use the board as an exploration. Yeah. It's an extension of the director's skill and tool. In other words, the storyboard artist theoretically should never bring anything to the conversation. If the director is present enough, the director can describe literally his entire shot list and say, mm -hmm. this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it, or at least we're testing it this way and we'll see where it goes. Uh, it doesn't always work out that way, but that's the ideal. And the ideal is that a director gets then to look at his film shot by shot in terms of composition, values, are we better off as a close-up? Are we better mm -hmm. off super wide? Are we better off holding this shot for a few beats before we cut away? Should we compose it this way? Should we walk in frame left, frame right? Mm -hmm. How does that balance out with the geometry of the next shot? Because mm -hmm. you have to keep in mind, it's not like reading a comic. When you're in a movie theater or in front of your screen at home, television, whatever it is, you're sitting still and your, your head's not moving and images are coming at you one after mm -hmm. the other. And the march of time means that there's no going back. So mm -hmm. your brain literally has to read information, sometimes extremely fast, in mm -hmm. terms of where you last abandon an object. The whole business about not crossing the line is actually not about a line, it's about left and right. It's about mm -hmm. where your brain has read an element, a visual piece of the puzzle. And you're replacing these pieces super fast. So the reason making films, whether you like it or not, is a graphic exercise first and foremost, is because you're dealing with the graphics as your brain perceives the assembly of the puzzle. You know, mm -hmm. people think they go to the theater to watch a movie or they watch a movie in front of a television. If you say, what's the screen? They say, well, the screen is that thing in front of me. It's not. Mm. The screen is your brain. Yeah, and a yeah. director is the person who places pieces inside of your brain one by one to tell you a story and make you believe what he's doing. And how good he is at doing that makes the difference. Mm -hmm. So the reason we prepare storyboards or visuals or the reason some directors like Kubrick take photos instead of storyboarding, mm -hmm. photos of every one of their, their angles through a particular yeah. lens, the reason we prepare is to do a first draft and a second draft and a third draft and a polish so that the prose of the director's language is delivered with absolute perfection so that the audience becomes hypnotized. That's mm -hmm. what we're after. And a storyboard is just one of several possible ways of doing that. It's not the only one. It's not necessary. Mm -hmm. You do it when you can, when you have the right person to do it with. Or you could do it any other way. I've heard Woody Allen does a video version of his films with students which he huh. cuts before filming. So he, he runs through basically. So that's what it is, that's all it is. And the idea isn't to replicate what you've done, but sometimes it's to discard everything you've done. Mm. So that the, the first pass, all the cliches and all the, the, the bad ideas can wash away so that the next layer of, of thinking is better. Yeah, more focused and yeah. More focused or more to the point or more, um, more graphic or less graphic. Um, sometimes you want to free up your visual because you realize you have to deliver a lot of intellectual information, like dialogue. You mm. don't want to have a very busy frame when you're trying to get people to process verbal information, etc. Mm -hmm. et so you want to balance out the values of your film. 
And that can require a lot of preparation, mm. provided you, you're actually in control enough of graphics and of your graphics department to be able to make use of that time so that the time spent reflecting on, on the graphics of your film is time that, that improves the film. It's not always the mm -hmm. case. Again, if you're not a visual director, if you're an actor turned director, there's a good chance that it's pretty useless. Mm. Uh, because actors typically focus on performance. A, mo a movie made by an actor is a film performance. It's not a deliberate performance of the environment or of the geometry of the film. It's, it's strictly actors delivering information. That can work, but it's not a movie. It's mm. a film performance. Yeah. Um, so... I mean, you, you instantly know who are the directors that are the virtuosos, you know, they're yeah. the Orson Welles's, the David Lean's, um, David Fincher, Stanley Kubrick, um, Otto Preminger. I mean, the list is long, but as soon as you think about their films, you go, well, yeah, of course, you know. So mm. I think I think in a way, if you're interested in exploring the graphic power of films, that's where you end up. You end up with mm. the Hitchcocks and the Finchers, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting watching, um, you did a, a video on uh, Gladiator with Charles de Lauzerico, who I inter interviewed before, who actually connected us. And um, you talked about something I'd never really thought of before in terms of storyboards, because I'd always seen storyboards in a fairly simple fashion, I guess, in that it was about framing and it was about movement. I'd never really considered that you would be also talking to the director about depth of field as sure. well and trying to reproduce that in storyboards. You can talk to the director about as many tools of his palette as the director wants to premeditate. Mm. And a good director who is strong visually will talk to you about all these things, but he'll only talk to you if he feels like you're able to handle it. You know, if you're, if you're familiar with the graphics of, let's say, Otomo Katsuhiro, the creator of Akira. Yeah. He's a guy, I learned a lot looking at his drawings in the 80s about depth of field in drawing. How to, how to take a, a graphic line and translate it into what literally a long lens can see. There's a way of approaching perspective that actually crunches the verticals and the horizontals that mm -hmm. gives you that feeling that you're looking through a telephoto lens. You can easily replicate that as a drawing if you know what you're doing. But I think a director who sees that a storyboard artist can't handle that will probably never talk about it. On the other hand, a director who sees that a storyboard artist is looking at it from that perspective will go, huh, mm. what if we crunch this? And after a while, that becomes part of the conversation. So let's just you know crunch that background, and we know mm -hmm. what that is. And so now the frame is actually saying, "Oh, by the way, this is a long lens." Yeah, you know, and you just see it. You don't have to write it. It's obvious that it is because the compression that you're drawing. But for that, you have to be able to draw. It's very yeah. difficult to translate that compression effect of a lens if it's difficult for you to draw full stop. You know, so again, it's a craft that's as good as the practitioners and usually as good as the director. You can't do a storyboard that's better than the director that that you're doing it for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess technique is only one part of the equation. I mean, you're a very skilled artist, but I guess without having the ability to convey the meaning in that frame, it's kind of useless. Meaning's got it's, it's everything, surely, for the for, for the director. It's, it's the Wild West. The problem with storyboards is that um, it's, it's a job that's 
highly misunderstood mm. and it's poorly defended. So you have a few key directors who have defined really what a storyboard can be and how much one can get out of it. Hitchcock probably being the main one. He's the one who really imported storyboards and made them a, a, a usual staple on films. Mm. And he knew what he was looking for. And, and he knew that he would only shoot certain parts of the set. So he didn't want to bother building elements of set that he wasn't going to need. Talking to editors who've worked for Hitchcock, they'll say, you can't believe the rushes. I mean, he'll start filming in the middle of a sentence and says cut before the sentence is over because he <laughs> knows he's only using this tiny little bit of film. So the editors didn't really have to do anything. They didn't have a mm. choice. They had like very limited rushes to pick from and Hitchcock was very happy. That's how he made his films. Is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. Um, most young directors couldn't work like that. They'd be fired because studios love to interfere, but nobody interfered with Hitchcock. So he, yeah, he was able yeah. to do it. But I think a, a director who basically has spent a lot of time thinking about storyboarding, and Ridley is one of those, he does it himself most of the time, mm. um, will know just how much he can burden the, the art department, the artist, mm -hmm. the art director, etc. And And that works in a certain way. The majority of directors aren't that specific. And because they're not that specific, anyone will do. And because anyone will do, that becomes the standard. And next mm -hmm. thing you know, um, you can sound like, like a lunatic for trying to impose a certain kind of style that is only useful to three directors in the business. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because yeah, it, yeah. it, it's not common. The, the, the average characterless common middle is something that leads to a completely different experience of the of the storyboarding process so it's it's as good as the practitioners literally yeah yeah really interesting this is why i love to talk to people who've worked with directors like like that we're talking about because it really opens up my view of of what goes on and you know just exactly how involved they they can be and and how aware they are of the tools that are at their disposal one thing that interests me is about how then you take the storyboard and when does the the art director the the, the production design department come into it are they there with you whilst the director's talking about it depends the storyboard it depends on the um on the director and the environment he creates. Again, mm. if we're talking about Ridley Scott, um, it'd be out of the question for departments to kind of fight each other, mm. um, which seems like a, a given. But you'd be surprised how many departments are in competition on a film. Um, mm. So as far as Ridley's concerned, you know, everybody gets the storyboard as soon as he's approved it. Make sure everybody has it. Make, make sure Janty, the costume designer, has it. Make sure Arthur has it, the production designer. Make sure so-and-so has it. Make sure the armorer has it. Communication has to be flowing so everybody knows what we're doing at all times. I've been on films where it's the opposite, where, where you know, people are fighting to get new information. And whoever has it, it's like the ring in Lord of the Rings. Everybody's like, <laughs> you know. seriously, seriously, it happens all the time. Um, part of the problem being a storyboard artist is you spend... You know how human beings can be. They're pretty grotesque sometimes. And, mm -hmm. and as a storyboard artist, you spent all your time with the director, which very quickly earns you the contempt of the producer, the production right. designer, and all these people who can't get a yeah. meeting with them. So pretty soon, um, people can get hostile about 
you know, who's got what information, etc. It, it seems trivial, but it's actually a very big part of the job is handling mm. that stuff. Mm. And um, you're in situations where sometimes if all goes well, all the departments have a nice flow. But usually that's not the case. Usually one guy is over here making decisions. Somebody comes in, interferes, somebody gets protective, etc., etc. So that depends on a number of things. Power. If a director is powerful, um, again, the job depends on who you do it for. A powerful director will say, let's get a storyboard artist now. And producer just runs and says, are you available? Uh, if There's cases where the director doesn't want to make choices. You know, the film's coming and, and everything is massing up. And the last thing the director wants to do is make decisions. So the producer gets worried and says, let's get a storyboard artist to focus him. It's a very different job right there. Mm. You know, in one case, you're wanted. In the other, you're not. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the director will deal with you differently. The production design department um, feels ambivalent. They fear the storyboard artist because the storyboard artist is like a permission that the director has to start dreaming out loud. And mm. it means we're probably going to see things that aren't in the script and that are not budgeted. <laughs> And the production right. designer doesn't want his budget to go up because he knows he's not going to get a cent more. He doesn't mm -hmm. want to have to build three times the amount of sets or the scale or whatever. So they can be pretty apprehensive. Uh, people want to see the storyboard because they want to know what's going on, but they don't always like it. Uh, directors of photography hate us. They want to kill us. Hmm. They, they don't want to see us around. They'll never admit to it, but they, they really their feeling is, I don't need this guy. I can, you know, I can create a as if brand. they're taking part of you're taking part of their job almost. Is that the well? Feel? Again, it's a misunderstanding if anybody yeah. feels that way. But they, there is a battle for control of of the camera and the camera operation and the composition, except with powerful directors. Mm -hmm. So again, you take the example of uh, a typical film made for television or for you know large audiences like a rom-com of some kind mm -hmm. the director may be pretty good he may be a very good actor director stage director may have great mm -hmm. experience on the set but not be particularly visually keen mm. makes perfect sense for him to rely on his production designer and his art and his director of photography to kind of set up the shot the way they see fit and then do their coverage based on that those are pretty normal films you see those films everywhere that's not master directing though so a master director is somebody who has a language and a language for a Fincher or Hitchcock is like a signature language. There's yeah. a way to approach a scene. There's a way to get out of a scene. Spielberg, all these guys, it's like filmmaking with a capital F multiplied mm. by six. You know, it's like, <laughs> whoa. So yeah. if we're talking about this kind of filmmaking, the director of photography almost doesn't matter. He's there to light, but actually getting behind and getting the shot just right is a matter of such precision that that nobody can touch the director's decision on this mm. so you have to be powerful to be an exquisite director because people don't let you make those choices otherwise this is something people don't realize i actually remember talking to ridley about this and he said people would be shocked if they understood how much of the filmmaking they see is a complete accident. Mm -hmm. How it's really left to chance and to the crew and to chaos. Mm. 
mm-hmm. they would be shocked if they understood that there's only a tiny percentage of people yeah. who are directing films who actually know what they're doing. And I, I believe him. I mean, I, I yeah. can attest to that. It's yeah. true. And so, so again, um, a precise, masterful director is handling his choices of frames on a level which is so sophisticated that neither the production designer nor the director of photography understand what he's doing. And when you're talking about mastering film language on that level, literally the, the least aware of what's going on are the directors of photography because they're concerned with creating a pretty image. Mm. And they're always lobbying to get a better shot from over here, which a good director will say, we can't do that. They usually don't elaborate, but they can't do that because it's wrong in terms of language. Yes. And so what is this language? It's very, again, this is a movie course if we get into yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's real. This, this is the linguistics of films is ultimately what it's about. Yeah. And you, you've, you're releasing this book. Is it this month you're releasing the Los Angeles book? It's, it's in November that, that we yeah. release it. Yeah. So, I, I, I had a little preview. of. I, I saw some of the preview of some of the images, and it's certainly a book that I would like to get my hands on. It looks, uh, looks fantastic. What, what kind of drove you to, or what were the circumstances that arrived in your life where you thought now is the time to make a book? Now is the time. Um, there's, there's been um, suggestions for many years from various people um, who said, well, you've worked for a lot of you know, cool films, blah, blah, blah. And mm. I also have a style which I guess is publishing friendly, um, which they often tell you on films, you know, like on Matrix, when, when they were looking for illustrators. They said, we're looking for illustrators that look good in print. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, are you paying for <laughs> No. Um, so, but it's a, it's a big thing now because they sell books all the time. So they tend yeah. to look for illustrators who've got training in a certain area. So there, mm-hmm. I've had quite a few offers, but one of the things that's always kind of spooked me, and it happened recently, a couple of years ago, actually, with a, a British, major British publisher who said, we want to do books, said, fine. And then they go, and cool, then we can, you know, call Tim Burton and ask him to do like a, a piece. And then we can ask Jean-Pierre Genet and we can ask, you know, Ridley or somebody, and, and we can have like an article by them on their film. And pretty soon I thought, yeah, this isn't going to be my book. Um, mm. So I said, forget that. Let's just not do that. And and so that happened quite a lot as well, because you realize mm. the industry works on a certain level. And that level is never about promoting what you do, ultimately. Mm. It's about mm. moving units, talking about yeah. celebrity. And mm-hmm. I was talking to a publisher just a couple of years ago, right after that, and said, you know, if I ever do a book, it's just going to be drawings. It's not going to be any movie titles. Mm. Not going to identify these drawings by saying nice. gladiator, mm. this, that. And the guy said, yeah, cool. Let's do that. Huh. You found the right guy, <laughs> finally. <laughs> so then, once I was liberated from that, I thought, well, it's okay to acknowledge some of the directors that mm. I really admire, because that's a very different thing. I can't talk about my love for film without talking about some of these people mm. mean a lot to me. Not necessarily people I've worked for. Uh, so many of them I haven't worked for, but I've met, and they, they were great directors. People like Sidney Lumet, um, people like William Friedkin, whom I got to know a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, great, great people that are worth mentioning. And immediately what I realized is that um, art books, I've seen a lot of them. I own a lot of them. Um, I never look at them. 
I yeah. buy them once, I flip through quickly, I file them and never see them again. Mm -hmm. And I thought what bothers me is that you're not accompanied. You don't have a manifesto that comes with it. Um, so I felt ready this time to, to kind of talk about 30 years of reflecting on film language, exactly what I was talking yeah. about. Why does the camera go here and not there? You know, that famous quote from Fincher, there's a hundred different ways to set up a shot, but ultimately only two and one of them is wrong. Hmm. And I thought, wouldn't be nice to explain what he means by that. Which only yeah, right. two and which one is wrong? It's an interesting question because once you get into this, you start really appreciating what these guys are doing. Uh, and I, so I thought, let's have a book that's rich in text as well. Let's talk about hmm. film and directors and how they, how they view their craft. What do they admire? Why are, are classic movies as important as they are to all these people? And I even did something in it where to illustrate some of the, the best film linguistics that I know. I, I gave a list of about 160 films, which to me are the, the best illustrations of mm. the pictures who really work along those hypnotic lines that we're talking about. And once that text was in, I thought, yeah, this is this is the right thing to do in a book. It's, it's no longer just a book of drawings, but it's more about reflecting on film, graphics, what's the role of art and illustration in movies because it's not you know a lot of people don't necessarily understand why why do illustrators what's the relationship between drawing and and the filmed image etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's the sort of book it is it's a it's kind of um it's a meditation on all of that all that we're discussing mm. now yeah and was there ever a moment um where you were you must have been going through hundreds thousands of different frames that you'd drawn were there any moments where you kind of had actually that's pretty damn good you know you'd almost because you're the thing is you end up when you're a creative person you you sort of immerse yourself into the thing that you're doing currently and then sometimes when a certain amount of time has passed you come back to it and you see it with fresh eyes was there any way you just kind of went actually that's pretty damn good or it wasn't well, as good as i remembered or well the stuff that wasn't as good as i remember just got discarded you know if, if yeah, uh, i yeah. mean what i thought i worked with an art director um uh, a wonderful lady named natalie that that my publisher introduced me to and I said I, mm. I need to work with an art director I can't do it alone and so we sat down about a year ago and um, I brought a hard drive filled with scans of images and things and she panicked at first she said I, this is too much <laughs> and she created <laughs> folders after folders categories and then we looked and as I looked if I saw drawings that I thought didn't hold up I thought I'm not going to torture myself by printing stuff that makes me uneasy so mm. let's just remove any drawing that makes me uncomfortable because I think it's too weak. And let's, because um, some stuff is just done, you know, I, I would have to spend hours just redrawing or something. And it, it's mm. just not stuff you want to show. Uh, but at the same time, they weren't very interesting drawings. Interestingly, we kept drawings that were not perfect, but mm. that told the story that, that the book is trying to talk about. And because I had another pair of eyes, if I said, oh, I don't really care for this, she'd go, this is good. You huh. keep it. And I'm okay. Like, okay. Yeah. So I was very obedient and I, I used her eyes to tell me if something was appropriate or inappropriate. Sometimes there were drawings I was really in love with and she looked at me and said, we don't need this. We have that. Huh. And other times I said, I, I'm annoyed by this. And she said, that's nothing. It's a good drawing. It stays. Huh. Um, so it was good. It was good because in the it would end, have been, I was going to say it would have been a very different book if it had just been you without the art director. It wouldn't have been any with. good. She did. Every, yeah, she, right. she was she was the sort of um, 
space I needed. And she was, she was very clever um, in, in organizing the rhythms of the book, separating little sections of storyboards with more images. She said, okay, now here's a place for a text. Your text about this goes here. And she, she was just brilliant, absolutely mm -hmm. brilliant. And a fresh pair of eyes um, saves you so much grief and so much time. And she was very good. I mean, she worked with color wheels. She did the most amazing thing. She, um, she found a book, a French book, that identifies something like 50 different directors and creates color wheels based on the color patterns of their films. Huh. And in the book, we based the sort of color arrangements per section without mentioning the directors, just nice. based strictly on some of these uh, color wheel cool. ideas. I mean, it's, it was like yeah, brilliant, yeah, brilliant that's stuff. That's really good, yeah. It's just really brilliant. It makes um, that kind of subliminal connection to those directors that you'll feel it without even knowing it. It's yeah. everywhere in it. And so yeah. I thought, wow, this is this is way above what I could have thought of. You know, she was really yeah, into great. it and, and did a great job. And so I looked at the drawings and thought, um, once they're in, in, a, in an environment with a frame around them and they go into a book and there's text next to them, a lot of these look a lot better than I remembered them to, you know. Mm. So, so I, that's... It, it, I wasn't that surprised. I just thought um, I don't look at my own work usually. So digging it up after all these years, yeah, I discovered that in some ways I think I was better um, 20 years ago than I am now for certain things. You know, it's, it's, we don't steadily evolve. Like we, we can explore different areas. There's things I used to do that I wouldn't be able to do again and vice versa. Mm. Mm, mm. where can people find the book is it in general bookstores or is it a particular website they need to visit there's definitely a website which is the publisher's website Corette it's C-A-U-R-E-T-T-E dot -T -T -E com um, the book will be available in Great Britain through the major specialized uh, comics dealers mm -hmm. it could be people like Forbidden Planet um, yep. bookstores like that will have it um, I'm not, I, I forget the name of the distributor, but it's a major English distributor, um, that's going to be carrying. So I'm, I'm guessing anything that's connected to science fiction and uh, graphic novels will, will be, um, will be the kind of bookstore. It may even be available through Amazon. I'm not sure. Okay. I'll be sure to uh, put a link in the podcast notes because I'm sure like-minded individuals will want to want to check it out i'll fill in the details on the um the british um the, the british distribution i'm i it, it eludes me at the moment but sure you know, no I'm, I'm pretty sure it'd be fully available yeah cool um you're one of these people that you know if you weren't extremely likable and easy to talk to that I would probably dislike because you're hugely talented <laughs> and you're also now a filmmaker in your own right and you're, you've been working on a film for a little while now what can you talk a little bit about yeah. uh, Brand X the movie Brand X so Brand X the movie uh, requires a little bit of introduction Brand X is is a band um, jazz fusion I think it's the best description it's instrumental band this kind of music was really big in the 70s. It's a sort of um, along the lines, if this speaks to your listeners, um, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Weather Report. But this is more English, um, mm -hmm. which has a different twist to it. But it's instrumental jazz, electronic, fusion, experimental, almost prog. And um, I discovered them in the 1970s. Always liked their music because um, I listened to a lot of jazz and a lot of variants of jazz. And 
their claim to fame was largely that Phil Collins was their drummer. Uh, Phil Collins was an yes. exquisite drummer. He was mm. a lot of things, good and bad, but man, was mm -hmm. he a drummer. And so that's really where people heard Phil Collins's drum and his chops, his drumming chops was in Brad mm -hmm. X. And people realized what, what he was up to and, and mm. it was staggering. So when he left, uh, when he went off to do his strictly solo career in 1980, um, he basically left a lot of stuff behind, including these guys. And they vanished. They disappeared, as bands do. I was in a cab um, in Los Angeles about 25 years ago. My car had broken down. And I was talking to the driver about music because he was playing some jazz. And I said, do you know Brand X? And the guy turns, looks at me and goes, did you know the guitarist from Brand X drives a taxi in this company? No. And I was just blown away. Wow. I, I didn't even understand the economics of, of the music industry at the time. I was just coming back from Japan and I'd seen their records in a big record store, the equivalent HMV in, in Tokyo. And I didn't understand why a musician would be driving a cab in Los Angeles with his albums selling all over the world. And I immediately thought, this is, this is a subject for something I want to do. I want to make a movie. The band didn't exist. It was impossible. A couple mm. of years ago, they announced that they were reforming. So I got on a plane, went and met them immediately and said, I want to do a film. I had no idea what I was going to do, how I was going <laughs> to do it. And they said, huh, huh, why not? And so I've been filming ever since. <laughs> I've been following them and, and going through their um, upheavals. Um, they're smack in the middle of an uh, interesting dispute at the moment. Um, the bass player is, is leaving. Um, oh, nice. So all of that is is you know stuff that's going to be in the film. Um, it, it's a movie about um, loss in largely because it's really it's called the Desert Years, Brian X, the Desert Years, and it's exploring um, what's happened to music, but also generally what happens to artistry once uh, a flow gets interrupted. And what I was interested in is looking, telling the story through thirty years of not being able to perform as musicians and what, mm. what they had to go through in their own desert, their own wilderness. So it's been a really interesting um, setup for investigating, for looking at lives, creative lives. Mm. Um, these are people who, you know, like many people in music and in art, have gone through a lot of hardship. And I've, yeah. I've hung in there because fundamentally, the art and the craft is more important than anything else to them. The dedication. So that's what I wanted to look at is dedication and focus. And we're recording music with them as well for the film. Uh, we've been filming live performances. So it's it's technically it's a, it's a jigsaw puzzle and it's fascinating. And I've been paying out of pocket. So I have to do a lot of storyboards to uh, finance the film. <laughs> <laughs> How um, many hours of footage have you accrued so far? I have far about then? 60 hours of, um, of wow. footage, of raw footage. And I figure it's going to take, literally, to do a 90-minute movie, it's going to take me about 90 hours of, of footage, which is pretty good. Mm. It, it, it means I can really curate and, and come right down to the very best material that I can find. A lot of it is just um, you know, recording music with musicians, sometimes far apart from one another, um, it's, it's complicated. It's a, it's a technical mm. nightmare at times, and it requires a specialized crew, you know, sound engineers that are very, very specifically focused on a particular aspect. Yeah. 
of recording and and it's um well, it's been a great experience it's just difficult because um you know the the pandemic has frozen yeah. everything and mm. so i haven't shot in a year literally i've, I've i haven't been able right. to do anything yeah but it's a good project and i'm i still don't know how i'm going to distribute it um i have to find distributors to to help me decide what it's going to be is it going to be a festival film is it going to be a straight to dvd thing i don't know mm -hmm. at the moment i'm, I'm mm -hmm. hoping that that will get sorted i had to film immediately because my musicians are in their 70s and um sounds a bit cynical but i didn't have much time and yeah. i, knew I yeah. knew i didn't have much time so if i spent oh, I, I contacted a couple of people including people who formerly were worked at the BBC and said, what do you think? And said, well, you know, if you do this or if you do that, and I could tell it was just never going to happen if mm -hmm. I, if I had to seduce people into giving me money. Yeah. Um, and, and so I went straight ahead and started shooting. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. It's important, isn't it? As well. I think, as you said, not having the time necessarily given the age of the guys, it's, I, one of the reasons I started interviewing people about their work on film and then going into the podcast some years later was when my grandfather died, who was a great storyteller, and we were all trying to remember his stories and we were missing those vital elements that made it interesting. And, yeah, it's really important. Um, I feel there's a certain imperative yeah. that I need to, to kind of to, to do this with, with certain, certain I, people. I get it. I mean, that's exactly my motive. I thought yeah. that there, I, I saw... Having had the good fortune or terrible fortune, I can't decide, of being born at this curious time in history, mm. which is um, sometime during the 60s and 70s when this explosion of incredible work that give mm. us Pink Floyd and Kubrick and, and mm -hmm. all this stuff, which will never come back. Yep. And I suddenly saw the doors starting to close on all of it. Huh. And it occurred to me that memory is as good as what we record. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of bands and a lot of musicians and a lot of filmmakers and people like that that I've loved deeply, but all of them have their own films. Mm -hmm. This band doesn't. Mm. So I thought if I don't do it, no one will. And, yeah. and I'm not letting this go. That door is not shutting without me catching these guys and putting them on film. It's just not happening. And so that was the impetus, but I, I get it. And I think literally we make memory when we do that because mm -hmm. the memory of, of future generations will be composed of the things we're recording. Yes. That's yeah. it. There's nothing else. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's a brilliant way to put it. Yeah, it's such a difficult time at the moment, isn't it? You know, the creative industries are really struggling. In the UK, we're not getting any support from uh, the government. I mean, the, our Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, said that artists need to retrain and go and get kind of proper jobs in inverted commas. I don't think they were exact, exact words, but that, That's does... why we're hearing everywhere. Yeah, people are yeah. saying, well, you guys have had your fun. Now go back and get a real job, yeah. Yeah, well, what they're failing to recognise is the importance of art in in society and why we need it and uh, and the function that it serves. Um, it's far beyond anything that you can quantify. Uh, it's true. I also think there's a little bit of contempt in this, which is, yeah. um, you know, you guys never had real jobs anyway. You're just having fun and hanging out with girls. You know that that's that's people's perceptions. Mm. Um, which may be true, what they're failing to realize, as you say, is that on the one hand, the, the survival of the soul largely depends on, on the survival of art in a society like ours. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, 
people don't quite gauge the amount of pain. And again, back to this thing of dying for your art. Mm. Um, it, it sounds lofty, but for making a film right now about people who literally almost died because of their art and yeah. certainly starved for 30 years, and I mean starved, um, I think this is what attracts me to the subject is that this is something people don't talk about very much, but it's there. It's there right beneath the surface with everybody. Uh, last year, we interviewed um, a guitarist I quite like. His name is Steve Hackett. He's a mm. guitarist from Genesis, from the mm. old Genesis, the mm. good, good kind. Yeah. <laughs> and he used to know the guys from Brand X. And, and so we did a long interview with him. But I told him, I'd like to talk about Brand X, obviously, but I want to talk about you and your own sort of desert. And he said, boy. And we went off, spoke for hours about the hardship in his own life. And so you'd never think guitarists from such great bands, you know, can have gone through so much difficulties over the years. But people love talking about this. They don't often get asked about it. Mm. But it's a very, very moving subject when they start saying, oh, you want to hear about how tough it gets. Mm. And they open up. And, and I find we live in a perfect time for exploring this subject. I think, I think we've been sold on the glamour of artistic lives and... Yeah. and all the fun that it is. Um, I don't think we've had an honest conversation about what it means to literally um, protect your creation and, and try to save it from being devoured by cynicism and business and all that stuff. So mm. again, this is a very big subject for me. Yeah, and I think it's a subject that needs to be talked about because there'll be people like myself who've had a little bit of a taste of what it can be like and I'm talking about a tiny taste of what it can be like when suddenly all of your work disappears all of your livelihood disappears and all of the things you've laid out in front of you for the future disappears in a matter of days it was for me you know I had the best year of working year ready you know best income for the year and it just all it went it just disappeared yeah. and you suddenly realize how difficult it is to exist on the benefit system or even if you don't want to go down that road even 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 worse so yeah it is it is a subject that this really a does need to be terrifying terrifying purge that's going on because a lot of people will not be able to get back into their career mm. Mm -hmm. which means um, the arts will suffer. They, they are already suffering. And by extension, again, um, people's soul will be lacking the next, you know, Dylan or mm. the next. The, the, all these people rescue us. You know, for me, I certainly owe my survival yeah. to music, mm -hmm. largely, more so than art. I'm, I'm mm. much closer to music in my heart and to mm. filmmaking than I am to drawing. Mm. But um, music probably more than anything. And I, I, it's not until that stuff has vanished uh, that you realize how dependent you are on it. You, all you need to do is pay attention to the amount of um, cover versions of great songs that are on the radio today, which mm -hmm. suggests that there aren't as many people writing really powerful songs as they once used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of people will say, well, that's just nostalgia, get over yourself, etc. It's easy to say, um, yeah. I'm unconvinced. Mm-hmm. I'm deeply unconvinced. I don't think that we live in an era where great creative spirits are thriving. 
Yeah, I think it's something to do with the mechanics of that industry and how people are kind of bought into it and they make a product of the person uh, immediately. And, you know, another massive influence surely has to be the fact that we're connected to our devices all the time and we don't have room to imagine. You know, I, my kids, you know, they said to me, oh, can I bring my phone to the car? And, no, we're driving for two hours. You're going to look out the window. You know, that's that's where that's where right. I am at as a parent. Well, what you say, what you say is interesting because one of the things, and this kind of circles back to the conversation we had earlier about um, production design, artwork, concept work, mm. all that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of what's going on in our era is technology coming in as a crutch, as a way to sort of get us over the difficulty and the pain of learning a craft and getting better at it on your own, which is a form of cultivating your own wisdom. It's like going into the cave for a certain amount of years yeah. and mm -hmm. coming out with your acquired gift of wisdom, the fire mm -hmm. that you've you know attained from the yeah. gods, that kind of thing. All of that is being dispelled. All you need to do is buy the latest version of Houdini or Maya and Bob's your uncle. You know, Learn yeah. to work with it, get a job, go do some visual effects. You're an artist. Um, the problem with that is, of course, these crutches may be diminishing the amount of wisdom that's available amongst the practitioners. Mm. It used to be that you could only get on stage if you really had mastered a few chords with your guitar and, and the poetry of being a songwriter. You know, mm. a Joni Mitchell uh, is, is just something that comes from heaven. Yeah. Um, that it's, and she's not the only one, you know, Beth Orton, any female yeah. folk singer etc every every area of music has got this kind of this personality that seems to be coming with a package a, mm -hmm. a baggage of a beautiful mastery mm -hmm. i don't think this is being encouraged anymore because i think technology acting as a crutch has kind of diminished the value of mastery and we're seeing this in music it's wonderful that we you can have a, a garage band at your fingertips you no longer need to work with a great drummer or a great bass player. You can do it all yourself. But what happens when you no longer need to work with a great player, a great bass player, and a great drummer is you don't. Yeah, yeah. And next thing you know, you're doing your album all by yourself, and it sounds like it. You know? Yeah, it's okay. You hit the ceiling quicker, don't you? Yeah, you do, and you're not being challenged by people who are kind of rubbing up against you their, their own level of excellence. And mm -hmm. so technology has insinuated itself into the artistic life to the point where it's making a lot of actual raw talent irrelevant. Mm. That's dangerous. It's affecting the quality of movies, I think, greatly. It's mm. affecting the quality of, of music. You know, it's like the bar is being lowered softly, but surely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. How have you found lockdown then as a as an artist yourself? Has it been a time for reflection or have you found it as many creative people have a, a difficult time to find focus? You know, you, you described it as flow interrupted earlier on. Has it been like that for you? Yeah, it, I mean, what's infuriating to me is that time passes and, and the, the ticking clock of urgency I was mentioning is definitely... Um, taking louder for me. I can feel it. There's a lot of problems arising around the band, including um, certain health issues with one or two of the mm -hmm. members that, that have mercifully have filmed already a lot of stuff. Yeah. But it's forced me to really be aware that I'm, I'm fighting the clock on this. It's one thing. On the other, um, I'm concerned about um, work. 
like a lot of people. There's no mm -hmm. work. I haven't worked in months. Um, and I know everybody in my industry is like that pretty much. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a few guys that are on a rotating thing with video games and things like that, but it's not mm -hmm. really the business I'm in. Um, and I'm wondering what's going to happen when the cloud lifts. You're going to have tens of thousands of people looking for one job, you know, which yeah. never happens. Usually we hopscotch. Yeah. So there's there's always a little bit of lag time, but there's always something around the corner. I'm not really sure what that's going to be like for anybody. Uh, so my my lockdown experience was okay because I'm I'm certainly used to being by myself. Um, I have a guitar here, which keeps me company. <laughs> I played a lot of guitar this year, um, yeah. so I, I'm not complaining. It was great. Actually, first thing I, I did when I realized there wasn't going to be anything else is I just pulled out the musical instruments, plugged everything in, and I've, I, the whole year went by. Um, <laughs> but there, there is an anxiety, um, quite apart from being at peace at home, which is thinking about what's next year going to be like. Yeah, Is it going to be worse? Is it going to be the same? Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. yeah I'm not, I'm not enjoying this at all yeah there's a I mean I've just luckily I'm back at work now um, as I said to you before we started recording working in sports television which is not something I ever ended up uh, ever intended to to do it's something I kind of fell into but it's it was all I've been a freelancer for a number of years for 10 or 12 years now and it was always that I had the choice to go and do something else in my mind and it's now that that choice has kind of been taken away and the the the, the potential income of the future has gone away I mean I don't I'm working right now I've just been working for the last uh, since the start of July very fortunate I don't know if it's going to end suddenly. I don't know if I need to keep that money for next year. I've got kids. I have a wife. I have a house and all of that stuff. And there is this kind of low level of anxiety and stress just bubbling under every single thing I do at the moment. Yeah. And I'm sure it's the same for everyone. You know, I go to work and it's it's PPE, it's it's sanitizing and all of that that little extra level is is going to have a big impact on us and um I sense that as well. You know, I, I don't really know. I'm, I'm, um, it's weird. I started working on the book, um, without any sense that it was going to be my main project. Mm. Uh, I thought, well, it's just, you know, hopefully we'll find a time to, to fit it in. And next thing you know, there was nothing else to do. Yeah. Um, so it's good for the book. It gave me an entire year to sort of, again, you know, noodle everything and look at every line of text and, and search out for typos and things. Yeah, <laughs> and you're gonna you're gonna come out of your cave a more accomplished guitarist as well. Hopefully, that's that's good. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I'm, I've actually because you know I hadn't played my guitar in many years, or certainly not played played it seriously. And I, I play a classical guitar. I'd forgotten mm. so many pieces, so I learned <laughs> new ones. I thought I that's think nice. That's a good thing to do. But yeah, yeah in terms of. Um, I'll come out of my cave and I'll probably go on a, what, what you do, I'm told, when you have a book out is you go promote it. So mm. uh, what I'll do is I'll go do signings and it'll keep me busy. And, yeah, and yeah. hopefully what I'm looking forward to is in a way getting feedback. It's funny because it's an art book and I really, I'm not thinking about the drawings so much. I'm thinking about the contents, the, the text. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I want I want to get feedback on the text. I want to hear what other people have to say out there about some of the things that I discuss having to do with classic films, 
classic directors, language, film as language, conversation nobody's really having enough, I think. Movies mm. and television series have become so important in people's lives, especially yeah. in lockdown time. But mm -hmm. you realize how, how the, the language of film is not part of our vernacular and how we have such little um, ability or, or impetus to discuss what the, the grammar of this language is. How we take a lot of it for granted and say, well, this is pretty good, I think. Or was this good? I don't know what to think of it. And, and lacking a basis of a, a strong intellectual basis for actually analyzing image. What is image for us today? Mm. Um, what's our relationship to image? What do we bring into it? What do we get out of it? This is some profound things that I think are time to ask. And I'm really curious to, to find out what people what people want to say about it you know yeah yeah it'd be interesting because i think we've got to a point in society and in the filmmaking world in particular where there seems and and you know we talked about it a moment ago with regards to technology where people think that there's a quick fix that you can do a, a two-hour course with you know uh, on a with a director on youtube and suddenly you're a director yourself there's somehow a shortcut to well to it's, reach. A, it's an interesting thing to talk about is the the scam of, of master classes and and the, the rush of of all these seminars that are being sold online to unsuspecting mm. uh, youths um, who generally have to scrape a few bucks to buy something that that it turns out is mostly useless to them um, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm quite adamant about this there's you know actors people who suffer they, it's very hard being an actor and, and mm. trying to find a footing and to be scammed by people selling you you know two hour three hour online master classes mm. which teach you nothing it's it's garbage yeah. and you get all these big actors participate because they earn millions doing it mm. um but i think it's appalling you get this with screenwriters as well all these, these yeah, yeah. fake screenwriting seminars so what what is what is this scam and what does it have in common? Well, what, what they all have in common is they don't address the most important thing, which is the economy that we live in. What does it mean to want to do these jobs to your own life? Um, should we have a, an honest economic conversation about what you have to sacrifice when you get into these professions? I mean, do you really want to buy a house? Do you really mm. want to raise children? Because at some point, you're going to come up against that. You're going to have yeah. to really analyze what economy you live in. It's not to discourage people, but to really show them what a sacrifice it is yeah. to enter these, these professions. And the other thing is an honest conversation about the amount of training that's required mm. in order to, to reach excellence. Mm. It's not mm. a two-hour practice on a computer program. What it really is, is years of perhaps going back to what you talked about earlier, which is mentoring, mm. um, living around professionals that are accomplished and, and that can let their own standards seep into you mm. and try to raise your game yeah. so that you don't bring down the whole game, but rather you rise up to it. Because mm -hmm. th that's literally what's at stake. When you get 10,000 people coming out of art school all deciding they're not going to work very hard, pretty soon they set the standard. Yes, yeah. So what do we do? You know, yeah. um, whose standards matter? And I think in a way it's a responsibility some of us have who've had been lucky enough to work with some really talented people to write our own manifestos and to claim, to stake a claim to the, the territory we defend. 
and mm. say, this is why we believe it's important to do things this way. Yeah. And in a way, again, that's that's part of maturing is understanding that we all have a responsibility. I mean, I, I saw myself as a student for all these years because mm. I worked with such important people. And I'm realizing now that they're all dying, that it's down to people of my generation to say this matters, because if yeah. we don't, then it dies with us. Mm -hmm. So we're here to do a testimonial, but also to preserve certain standards, it's kind of like the elders, you know, used to yeah. say, we preserving good manners because they're important. Well, look mm -hmm. at what happens if you don't, you get Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So how do you like that? You yes. know, because that's that's what happens literally when you when you unlock those mental locks that prevent people from slumping. Yeah, everything falls. Yeah, it soon unravels, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's great though that there there are people like yourself who've you know got to this point where they understand that and they're willing to share their experience to give future generations a better understanding of what it you know what it takes to do something like this. You know, I always think of. The directors like Ridley and like Kubrick, who they they got their skill through experience. Yeah. They they you know worked on commercials or Kubrick you know shot a million photographs over a few years and you know you're not going to learn it through just watching no, it. I, I don't think we should lie to anybody about. Um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with watching a seminar, but of course. But I think it's it's really a set of false expectations if you don't tell people, listen, you need at least 15 years of solid practice before you can be any good at any of this. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, the, it's, it's, um, it's the old Malcolm Gladwell, I think, thing about 10,000 hours, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I haven't counted, but I think there's a logic in there somewhere, which is that you have to pay the dues, you know. Mm. Um, this idea of paying the dues is being dispelled by um, companies who sell you computer programs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no getting around it because if you're going to be useful in in any position making films or creating media, you have to have had the capacity to take punches in the gut and you have to understand the stakes. You have mm -hmm. to You have to have kind of thickened your own skin through living. Yeah. This is how you become good as well, is, is learning to um, see trouble coming at you. So you can, I mean, directors do it all the time. A lot of their time is spent harnessing energy to get away from complicated actors, from complicated studios that are trying mm -hmm. to trip them up. I'd say it's 60% of what they do hmm. is actually avoiding blows. Yeah, yeah. So they can carry out their work. Well, how are you going to do that with that experience? Yes, yeah. Um, Ridley used to say you have about a hundred battles on a film. So he said, carefully pick out the three you want to win. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great line. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we end things there then. I appreciate um, talking to you. Um, I appreciate you giving your time. And um, I hope that people seek out your book, um, Los Angeles. And um yeah, I'm looking forward to getting it myself. I've I've pre-ordered I'd pre-ordered it and uh yeah, a large box will arrive and I'll think, what did I order? Or what has my wife ordered now? And I'll open it up and I'll be delighted to see that it's your well, book. Well thanks thanks for the uh the opportunity to talk about all this. It's um it's it's these are important subjects to me. So I, I always welcome mm. a chance to kind of um 
to, to touch on that. And I regret that a book is as short as it is, you know, at 400 yeah. pages, I wasn't even able to, to say much. We scratched the surface, but it's a, uh-huh. it's a start of a conversation. Yeah. yeah. And the start of a new, a new way of artistry for you. Maybe there'll be more books in the future, you know, who knows? Maybe there they might be less drawing in them and more theory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I get that sense that that's where you're, you're shifting towards. Well, there's, yeah, there's a lot to say. I really hope you enjoyed the chat I had with Sylvain as much as I did. Really interesting guy and I hope that we stay in touch. I'm really looking forward to getting his book, which, as I said, I've pre-ordered. It looks like the sort of book that I'm just going to pour over for, for days and days, wishing I had that superpower of being able to, to draw. I do regard it as a superpower. For next time, uh, I've got a couple of choices. I'm not sure which order I'm going to do it in yet, um, but I do have a stuntman called Ben Dimmock who I'm hoping to speak to soon once he comes out of some recent surgery. And I'm also hoping to speak to another very interesting chap called Marty Brennis. After he saw Star Wars, he was given the number of a place called Sprocket Systems in Marin County that may ring a bell. He was suggested to me by a guy called Johnny Banter, who I follow on Twitter, who's an effects guy. Um, You know, he's got his own story to tell, and I'm looking forward to talking to him. Hope you join me next time, whoever I'm talking to. And if you can, please do support me on patreon.com forward slash Jamie Benning. Even if you can just donate a dollar per month or every couple of months, that would be fantastic. It just helps me continue to to make things like this in my videos. Thanks to all of you lovely patrons on Patreon who are continuing to support me. I really do appreciate it. Couldn't do it without you. So thanks so much. Hope you can join me next time. See you soon. Don't be a dick, wear a mask. Mm